Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, I'm about to reveal how the world really works. That's right. I was not going to talk about the coronavirus because, in general, as you know, I prefer discussing things of timeless application. And in a short space of time, uh, the coronavirus will be gone. It'll be dealt with. It'll become history. It'll be like swine flu and SARS virus and Ebola and all of those things that at the time were said were going to cause hundreds of thousands of deaths and huge dislocation. Trouble is that uh, the coronavirus uh, will continue to be spoken about for a long time, not because of any unique qualities of the virus or the way its RNA works or the way it clings to a host molecule. No, not any of those things. It's not that those things aren't interesting. Uh, I, I did find it fairly interesting myself to know that a virus is incapable of reproduction by itself. It can't, it can't increase. But the only way it does that is by hijacking a host cell, and it uses the host cell in, in somebody's body. Um, that, that host cell has what we could think of as uh, machinery... Uh, the machinery of the molecule, uh, and that will do the, the reproducing for the virus. And our immune system obviously fights it every step of the way, but uh, sometimes the immune system loses and the virus wins. And when that happens, um, it duplicates and releases its offspring, and they can eventually damage and and destroy the cell. And if too many cells are destroyed by the multiplying particles, then you have problematic health consequences. And so, yeah, all of that is is certainly very interesting, but um, it's not what's causing the problem here. Uh, What's causing the dislocation in your life, and this is true pretty much wherever you live, um, is not so much the actual health consequences as much as it is the consequences of fear, panic, and hysteria. And, uh, and so I thought, yes, I do need to address the uh, coronavirus on this show, but I have to do it in a way that provides you with information you simply would not have obtained anywhere else. Otherwise, I would be guilty of the most heinous and unforgivable sin imaginable, and that is wasting your time. The one commodity of which you are really limited, and I'd be wasting it by treating the loyalty of regular listeners cavalierly and simply giving you information that you could easily have picked up elsewhere, and you probably have already. And so if we are going to discuss any aspect of the coronavirus, then it's going to have to be from the perspective of something different, 
perhaps from the perspective of ancient Jewish wisdom. Now, I am not a doctor. I'm not an epidemiologist. I, um, I, I'm not involved in the health industry at all. And so what can I possibly add to the topic that is obviously such a medically driven concern? Well, let me try and explain. You see, there are three characteristics that people bring to progressing, to moving forward, to resolving problems, to overcoming challenges, and getting through tribulations. Those are intelligence, wisdom, and education. What is the difference? What are these three things? Education. Well, uh, if you go to a doctor, what you want to most times get is the benefit of his education and of his intelligence, because intelligence isn't anything that was taught to you, like education. Intelligence is what you have as the result of your parents conveying to you certain genetic material, certain brain power, and that's really what intelligence is. It's simply a function of how much information you can assimilate, how quickly you can assimilate it, and how quickly you can manipulate it. And so for that reason, uh, flying, piloting a fighter jet for an air force uh, requires incredibly high intelligence. It requires education and intelligence. You've got to be taught a huge amount of information about flying, about weather, about uh, the physics of flying, about the airplane characteristics, and, um, and you need very high intelligence because the amount of information that is flying at you every second is so high. There is so much to assimilate, so much so, in fact, that it actually is not possible to fly a modern fighter like an F-18 or an F-35, you can't fly that uh, using only pilot skill. If the computer, there's more than one computer on board, but if all computing power failed, uh, it would be very difficult, close to impossible, to fly the airplane. There is simply too much information to process all the time. Even so, with the computers, there's still an enormous amount of information flying at you. And... Uh, this is also true flying a regular commercial airliner at times of crisis. In other words, ordinarily for normal procedures, uh, landing, taking off, uh, flying straight and level, changing flight levels, all of that is, is pretty straightforward. Um, but at a time of crisis, when uh, uh, wind shear strikes an airplane in the, in the process of landing, or something goes wrong, uh, seriously wrong during the flight, or uh, you think of uh, uh, that um, sad uh, catastrophe, Air France Flight uh, 447 um, in the uh, early summer of 2009 was flying in uh, over the Atlantic, and uh, um, it seems as if some ice crystals blocked the 
pitot tubes, which provide airspeed readings, and that caused the autopilot to, to disengage. And the pilots then were suddenly flooded with a whole lot of information. There's the instruments, there's, and I was the middle of the night, there was not much they could see out the windshield, but their bodies were giving them signals, and they misread the signals. And um, the, uh, they brought the airplane into a stall from which it never recovered. And, uh, you know, it's tragic. I mean, it didn't have to happen. It was pilot error. Uh, there was just too much information coming at them. And so uh, that's what intelligence is, uh, to do well on an examination uh, within a time frame takes intelligence. You have to have a memory, and you have to be able to process the information you've studied and committed to memory, and you've got to do all that with a clock ticking before time runs out on you for the examination. And uh, that's one of the reasons that there is a correlation between intelligence and uh, people's um, success in examinations in the hard sciences. Medicine would be one. Anything in science, mathematics, engineering, technology, biology, uh, chemistry, all of those things where, are, where, where there is specific knowledge. Now, it wouldn't be true for uh, political science, not nearly the same. English literature, not the same. Middle period Byzantine frescoes, not the same. Comparative art, comparative religion, um, the, the majority of all these silly courses that people waste time and money on in universities, no, uh, absolutely uh, not in any way, no correlation with intelligence. Gender studies, yeah, I, I think not. Uh, but intelligence is, is a very real thing, okay? It really is. It, it tells us a lot. Now, uh, generally, People who serve on the faculties of universities, particularly in the, as I say, the sciences, uh, tend to be very high IQ individuals. And famously, the late William F. Buckley uh, once said, I would rather be governed by the first 300 names in the Boston Telephone Directory, if you remember what those are, than by the faculty of Harvard University. And what he was saying was that intelligence doesn't, on its own, intelligence doesn't tell you very much. All right? The uh, uh, intelligent people have done horrendous things, um, absolutely horrendous things. Uh, there have been um, horrible murders committed by people of very high intelligence. Um, the, uh, you know, there, there, there was, in few places, a higher concentration of intelligence than in Germany between the two world wars. Uh, it was a very developed society. And, uh, you know, they, they came up with the Holocaust. Now, it wasn't all Germans, obviously. It was Nazis. But people went along with this. Um, you know, intelligence is really, really dangerous. Um, I think of, gosh, think of the early in the 20th century. There was a famous murder committed by um, a guy called Nathan Leopold, who was Jewish, and Richard Loeb, his friend, uh, who was, well, his dad was Catholic, his mom was Jewish, 
uh, or was it the other way around? His dad was Jewish. His mom was Catholic, actually, if I remember correctly. But um, these were two upper uh, society students at the University of Chicago. And in 1924, they kidnapped and murdered a 14-year-old kid in Chicago. It's unbelievable. Why did they do it? Um, they wanted to see if they could get away with it. They, they believed that they were very high intelligence. They said this. And they wanted to commit the perfect crime, one that, that could never be, um, they could never be found. They could never be caught. Well, um, just an, an interesting sidebar to that story. Um, they were arrested. And uh, Nathan Leopold's parents retained as the lead counsel for his defense none other than Clarence Darrow, who you will remember was already famous a few years earlier uh, for the Scopes monkey trial. So um, he, was a, he was a leading force in the ACLU, which has always been, in my view, a somewhat problem American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, a, a sort of mixed record organization with with definitely, let's say, a tendency to move America to the left as much as possible. But anyway, uh, just by way of giving you an example, that uh, intelligence by itself is a huge problem. <laughs> right? And that's what Buckley was saying. Um, he was saying that the faculty of Harvard University was highly intelligent, but also highly amoral. Whereas the first 300 names in the Boston Telephone Directory, you know, on average, ordinary people, probably not as intelligent on average as the Harvard faculty, but probably more morally grounded and more morally rooted than the Harvard faculty. So intelligence is, um, is simply brain processing power. It doesn't tell you that the person is a decent human being. It tells you nothing about the person's values, nothing at all. So that's intelligence. Education, that's what you're taught. And if I take my car to Fritz, the German car mechanic, it's because Fritz has undergone really, really terrific education in Stuttgart, Germany, and in the United States. And Fritz can work on any German car, and he knows them backwards. And Fritz has a very strong education in German cars. Um, he's also uh, fairly intelligent, because I have seen Fritz will listen to the car. He'll ask me a few questions, and he'll make a diagnosis very quickly that in the overwhelming majority of cases was spot on. So Fritz was using education and intelligence very effectively. And um, uh, so it is when, when you think of, of whatever area it is. All right, we use, again, intelligence, we use education. But what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is something else. Uh, wisdom is, well, if you are anything like a regular listener of this show, then you will know what I mean when I say wisdom is a full and comprehensive understanding of how the world really works.
That's what wisdom is. How the world really works on every level. Now, let me explain. Uh, physics, in a way, belongs to the world of wisdom, as does mathematics. And so, you don't, there is no way anybody would grow up and intuitively get a sense of the laws of physics. That's not how it works. I, I will have an intuitive sense of keeping myself warm when the weather's cold. I may even develop an intuitive sense of how heavy things are. Just by my life experience, by the time I'm six or seven years old, I'm used to already recognizing that metallic objects tend to be heavier than wooden objects, and um, most plastic objects are even lighter than that. And so before I pick up an object, I have subconsciously done a little internal calculation of what it's made of, how big it is, and I've already prepared my muscle for the anticipated weight. Um, of course, if I gave you a ping-pong-sized silvery ball made of uranium, uh, you would be misled, as I would have at, uh, at that age, or any age for that matter, because these are intuitive things. But uh, when it comes to wisdom, when, or physics, if we're talking about physics, um, can you understand the physical nature of the world? Well, you could if you understood, if you first of all got a grasp of photosynthesis, and that'll tell you a little bit about why vegetation is mostly green, and you could study about light and discover a diffusion of light and why the sky is blue, and then you could discover, you could study sound and the transmission of sound and the transmission of light, and you could study electricity, and eventually you could study quantum mechanics, and along the way you've studied Newtonian mechanics, and um, at the end of that all, you've got a pretty good idea of how physical parts of the world work. Now, does that mean that you are well-equipped to, uh, to, e to effect and maintain a happy and joyful marriage? No, of course not. And if you had intelligence, no, that has nothing to do with it. In fact, sometimes intelligent people, overly intelligent people, are handicapped and don't intuitively, without help and training, do well in a marriage. Um, education, well, education can help somewhat, but wisdom would be the most useful thing of all. And so how the world really works, how male-female relationships work, what money is, uh, family relationships, um, all of these things, understanding uh, life and death, understanding uh, how to live different phases of your life the best possible way, um, understanding time, understanding human nature, uh, understanding greed and understanding procrastination, all of these things make you a wise person. And there is no set of experiments, there's no lab in which you can find out these things. These things are communicated mouth to ear. These are things you learn from a teacher who is wise. These are things that uh, are essentially the essence of scriptural teachings. In other words, if you ask me one of the main reasons for studying the Bible is to acquire wisdom. Psalm 111, 
uh, the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Well, yes, because so much of the deeper and hidden realities of human life are spiritual, not physical. And you can't understand the spiritual if you don't know God. And so clearly, yes, fear, or as the Hebrew would have it, seeing God, the uh, seeing or understanding God is the start to all wisdom. That is, I'm afraid, true. So, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, are you alleging that an atheist cannot be wise? Uh, not necessarily, because many proclaimed atheists um, are not deep down believing or non-believing atheists in exactly the same way that many self-proclaimed religious people are actually not very religious at all. Many people who pass themselves off or dress, they do everything they can to be religious, except they're not. And in exactly the same way, there are people who, for various reasons, um, pass themselves off and may even choose to see themselves as atheistic people. But their atheism is weak. It doesn't go all the way down. And so there are people like that. I know people like that. And so people like that can actually have wisdom. But in general, um, one has to see the link. By no means am I suggesting that all religious people are wise and all uh, secular and uh, atheistic people are stupid. I'm not saying I'm not saying that. And also I should correct. I'm not sure that stupid is the antonym to wise. Uh, I think lack of wisdom is the best way to speak about the opposite of wise that I can think of. Now, uh, undoubtedly, uh, there are many books that are written that contain uh, great wisdom. And so reading books does uh, several things for you. If you read a good book, then you gain wisdom. And reading a well-written book, you also gain fluency in the language in which you are reading. Uh, an example of a book that contains considerable wisdom is a book that was written in 1960, early 60s, uh, by a guy called uh, Elias Canetti. It's called Crowds and Power. And um, I... Uh, and again, I'm not. I'm not. I, I, if I recommend a book on the show, I recommend it explicitly, and I tell you, I think you should read this book. I'm not going to say that about the book, um, but I, for me, it was useful, and I, I have a copy of it. And uh, one of the things he speaks about there is uh, is how uh, crowds are influenced, and how you can begin to understand a crowd as almost having its own brain. Um, you remember in the past, in an earlier show, I told you about my experience with destroying part of a huge six-foot-high ant castle in Africa and watching the ants rebuild it to precisely the identical contours it had before I damaged it. And we knew at the time, and I spoke about this, that no individual ant possesses the neurological equipment to be able to conceive 
or to hold in memory the contours of the tower. And so it, it, it left with this amazing question that, that stimulated me enormously, which is so, if this ant nest is nothing other than hundreds of thousands of ants, maybe more, and each ant lacks the, uh, the brain power, it lacks the neurological material to know how to do this, how on earth does it happen? And the answer um, that I got from another book that contained wisdom, a book called The Soul of the White Ant by a South African writer called Eugene Murray. Um, again, it's, it's a long time ago. I, I, I actually had the book when I was a kid. I think I still got a copy. And in it, he introduces this incredibly powerful idea, which is that that crowd of ants starts behaving as if it is a single organism. It's as if we would look at the organism of the human body and review it and say, well, this really is a lot of different animals living in the same nest. There's millions of blood cells living over there, and there's a heart and a lung over there, and a kidneys over there, and all these little creatures coexist. In, and then somebody says, well, wait a sec, I think you'll get a better understanding of a human being if you view it as one entity. Well, it's kind of easier to do with human beings because we're accustomed to it, but seeing the beehive from one point of view as if it was one animal with a sort of unified brain made up of hundreds of thousands of these individual creatures or ants one big animal made up of cells each cell being a separate ant and that helps us grasp certain aspects well Elias Canetti's point is that crowds of people are the same way um, you won't really understand an ant's nest if you just think of it as a conglomeration of individual ants, each with its own limitations. But if you see it as a nest, one big entity, okay, see a crowd, not just as a bunch of individual people, each of whom, by the way, might act perfectly rationally alone, but in contact with one another, they develop a crowd mentality and they become a separate creature. Uh, this was something that uh, came out in a 1919 Supreme Court case in the United States of America. There was a wonderful justice uh, called Oliver Wendell Holmes, and he sat in judgment with all the other members of the court on a case called Schenck versus, uh, the, uh, versus the United States. Who was Schenck? Schenck was a Jewish socialist um, living in Philadelphia who in 1917 was arrested for passing out um, pamphlets to young men, <coughs> discouraging them from signing up for the draft or, or responding. It wasn't a draft, it was conscription. World War, in, the, in the middle of World War One, and uh, this socialist, Schenck, was doing his best to stop people joining the Army of the United States of America. And uh, he, he, um, he was stopped from doing that uh, because at the time, 
President Woodrow Wilson had uh, passed the Sedition or Espionage Act, I think it was, and it was under that they said, look, you are hurting the United States of America. You're not allowed to pass those out. So he sued back on the basis of his free speech. His free speech rights were being impeded. And Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes famously said at the time that yelling out fire in a crowded theater would not be acceptable even under the most liberal interpretation of free speech of the First Amendment, because actions that are going to have predictably bad words that are going to have predictably bad consequences um, could be restrained without violating the Constitution's free speech clause. And the reason, uh, obviously, is that... um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Chief Justice Wendell Holmes, was saying, look, we know that a crowd in a theater is going to behave in a certain way. And uh, in fact, there were a number of instances, there have been a number of instances where people wrongly invoked a or, or stimulated a stampede in a crowded uh, auditorium and people have been killed. Uh, because you can predict that a crowd behaves in a certain way, all right? And I'm sure you can see where we are going now in the direction of the coronavirus. When I say the immediate threat to your well-being is not medical, it's not the coronavirus, it's not the germ. The immediate threat to your well-being is the crowd effect, It is the panic, the fear, and the hysteria that is going to disrupt your life and possibly even your finances. And so that's really, I think, where we need to be looking, because that at least is an area I think that I can bring you information that is not that easily available elsewhere. Using the principles of ancient Jewish wisdom, we will try and analyze just what is going on here. Perhaps a good place to begin is one of the most catastrophic events in Jewish history, and it is recorded in the book of Exodus. The implications emanate from that event to the present day, uh, the entire Hebrew calendar was disrupted uh, by this event, uh, having pushed le- pushed back certain things that were due to happen directly after the Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai. All of a sudden, the catastrophic events of the Golden Calf occurred, and by the time that matter had been somewhat resolved and uh, some 90 days had elapsed, uh, certain fast days and sad days in the Jewish calendar appeared. Uh, Certain what were going to be positive days turned into negative days. And all in all, it was a huge mess. Now, interestingly enough, it happens to be the reading, I don't know if you know, but the five books of Moses are divided into 54 sections. Uh, We call each of those sections a sedra, and um, the uh, portion, each portion is, is read on one particular Sabbath, 
And uh, I'm recording this in the middle of March 2020, uh, just while the Democratic primaries are going on, and uh, while the coronavirus crisis is still uh, in growth mode, I'm afraid. Many of you will be listening to this, and it will already be ancient history, long and forgotten, because one thing about America is that America, unlike many other countries, America does not have a long attention span. But uh, the the Torah reading for the current um, Shabbat, the current Sabbath, happens to be in chapter 32 of the book of Exodus. And I'll read you the opening verse. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain of Sinai, The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and in a very threatening mode said, make for us gods, make for us a god which will go before us. Okay, so what's what's going on here? Um, Just think for a moment if in 1940, yeah, in 1940, 1941, Imagine that Winston Churchill had died. I think you will agree that the English people would have been absolutely bereft. And it's quite possible that the war would have gone very differently. But one thing is for sure, and that is England's willingness to fight on might have been severely handicapped. There are times of, of, of critical periods in nations' histories And in the histories of all organizations, uh, there are times where the loss of a leader can uh, cause a business to go off the rails uh, because there are times when certain individuals are just critical. A lot of the time that isn't so, but such was a time soon seven weeks after leaving Egypt at the foot of Mount Sinai Uh, Moses was supposed to be on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, and they were so certain that his return would be precise and on schedule that when he didn't show up on schedule, and it was actually an arithmetic error uh, that occurred, the people blinded by that were fearful, and uh, they did something which was extraordinary because it's like just happened that God gave the Ten Commandments, chief among which was no other gods, no idolatry, I am the Lord your God. I mean, this is pretty unambiguous stuff. And so terrified and so panic-stricken and so hysterical did the nation of Israel get there at the foot of Mount Sinai that they launched into this absolutely frantic pursuit of a golden calf. This was going to become their idol. The uh, the appeal of idolatry is apparently very much stronger than we automatically realize and recognize. But at any rate, this was a catastrophic thing for the Jewish people. As I say, it continues to reverberate to the present in certain ways, and this came about for no other reason than a hysterical and panic-stricken response 
to Moses' delay. They were not even capable of waiting for a few days. Hey, you know what? Let's just wait and see. There's no urgency to this. No, you got it wrong. When a crowd assumes um, mob uh, identity when a, like Elias Canetti says in his book Crowds in Power the when an, when a um, when a crowd of people become a mob animal there is no rationality is no longer there and so by way of understanding what's been going on this is very helpful i think i'm not going to now uh, take the time to do stuff which is, most of you, I'm sure you know already, if you don't, the stuff's readily available, but you've got to know that not only is it not at all clear that a coronavirus is a bigger problem than the flu, it probably is a smaller problem than the flu. And if we would react this way to the flu, then in the United States of America, they'd have to close up shop from December to April every year because the number of people impacted by the flu is far, far higher than the number of people impacted by coronavirus. And uh, if indeed schools and universities and sporting events are all going to be shut, synagogues are being shut. I haven't, I don't, some churches maybe as well, I don't know. But the reaction is hysterical. It is panic driven. Well, wait a moment, they say, you don't know. This is on its way to becoming a pandemic. Didn't you hear what the World Health Organization said? It's not just an epidemic. It's a pandemic. Well, I do think, and I'll come to this, I think that media and uh, quasi-governmental institutions have been shockingly imprudent in uh, how they've been talking about this. For Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York, to say this could produce hundreds of thousands of deaths in the United States, um, that is designed either through sheer malice and stupidity to provoke panic, or he is just another slimy politician who looks for an opportunity to get in front of the cameras by saying anything it takes. But um, all I want to do is remind you that um, in September 1999, Alan Greenspan, right, a very intelligent man, a very educated man, not a very wise man, said, Federal Reserve Chairman at the time, September 99, Y2K-related failures could have noticeable effects on the economy. That's his way of saying shattering and debilitating effects. You may not even remember what went on at the time. It's 20 years ago. Well, the panic started moving around the United States that no computers would be able to handle the transition from the uh, 20th century to the 21st century. And as the clock went 1201, January the 1st, uh, the year 2000, there'd be widespread collapse, the electrical grid would fail, airliners would crash, the air traffic control system wouldn't work, uh, the banks would close down, 
and they really drove complete panic. I am happy to say that I am Ayatollah Ayuso, uh, which is to say I told you so, because when I was on the radio at the time, I said very clearly it's not going to be any problem. How did I know that? I wasn't a computer engineer. I wasn't, uh, I didn't know, how did I know that? I didn't have the education to know it. I didn't have, maybe I didn't even have the intelligence to know it, but I did have the wisdom to know it. And the wisdom said to me that, that maybe when a crowd turns into a mob, certain things happen, they behave irrationally, and the crowd, I shouldn't say they, it behaves irrationally, but the changing of the century from the 20th to the 21st isn't going to be experienced by 300 million people all in a big field. It's going to be experienced by mostly 300 million individuals, each of whom has his own computer, each of whom has his own job, each of whom has to make sure that the bus he drives keeps to a schedule. And I said on that basis, with everybody taking care of their own affairs and their own business, nothing will fail, everything will be just fine. And so it was. Now, I'm not the only person, just to make clear. I mean, this, was, this wasn't a hard thing to say. All one had to do was remain immune to the panic that was coming from, and here I put the word in quotation marks, experts, experts. The chief economist for Deutsche Bank Securities was a guy at the time called Edward Yardani, highly intelligent, highly educated. In those days, Edward Yardani was quoted extensively everywhere. I mean, it was it was a name some of you who might have been in finance at the time uh, would remember as I remember. Anyways, in November 1999, Edward Yardani, who was chief economist, as I say, for Deutsche Bank Securities and being regularly quoted on radio and television, the Wall Street Journal, um, he said, uh, mark my words, Wall Street is being lulled into a false sense of security that Y2K will be a non-event. It actually was a huge non-event. But says Edward Yardani, The worst-case scenario would be an intense recession for the first six months of 2000. The Dow Jones index could drop to a fraction of its value by March of next year. He said this in November of 1999. Um, And he's been saying that for two years, by the way, since 98. 98 and 99, he was talking about the destruction to the economy that will come from Y2K. And so it was. There was was no shortage of experts who were saying what an absolute calamity and what an absolute disaster it was going to be. So uh, listening to experts on these topics um, is really not necessarily a great idea. I've spoken in the past, and I hope you remember this, I've spoken in the past about the dangers of contracting a disease every bit as serious as coronavirus. I call the disease expertitis, where whatever anybody who is anointed as an expert says, we believe. When somebody says studies show, oh, we immediately fall to our knees and bow our heads. No, 
They were wrong. They were wrong about Y2K. There was no recession. The Dow continued to climb. Everything was fine. Experts said that AIDS was a a disease. I'm going back to the 80s now. Uh, AIDS was going to spread to the heterosexual community and wipe out hundreds of thousands of Americans. Honestly, you you can find this for yourself. It's really, these days, it's really easy to find all the medical experts who said that. And at the time, uh, I was a rabbi of the synagogue I had started in Southern California with Michael Medved. And uh, and at the time, I spoke and I, I said, it isn't true. It's not going to happen. Um, I uh, I explained, it's simply not going to happen. Is there an epidemic of AIDS? Yes. But I think you also have to study the motivations of those making those claims. Number one, they were desperate to prove that it was not a homosexual cause disease. Number two, they were desperate to get huge sums of funding. Uh, and um, therefore, you drive panic and fear and you get what you want. That was what was going on then. You might remember the Ebola panic. You might remember swine flu. You might remember SARS. All of these things, all of these things produce, all of these things suggested at the same time a tremendous panic that you really have to, you you can't possibly count on surviving. This is really going to be absolutely incredible. One has to know that experts are not necessarily right. They are human beings, even if they're scientists. And people say, I believe in science. No, I don't believe in science. I believe in God. I regard science as a very good tool. And like any tool, it has its limitations. I have a very nice teensy-weensy screwdriver for screwing in the screws that hold the side pieces onto your glasses. But that's not really the right thing to use for removing the hubcap from my truck. Right? Use it. You can use a big 18-inch screwdriver for that if you want to. The right tool for the right job. Science is a wonderful tool when it's used correctly. Uh, it's, it's completely hopeless when used incorrectly. Right there. So we just got to understand that uh, back in 2002, when they spoke about um, the severe acute respiratory syndrome, right? That SARS. Nobody knew what SARS meant for. That's what it stands for. And um, by the way, this is exactly the same as what coronavirus does. And um, uh, they said, yeah, it's going to infect hundreds of thousands of Americans. Tens of thousands are going to die. They said that. Uh, You might remember a bird flu. Remember bird flu? Um, That was 2005. Um, Swine flu, the swine flu pandemic, 2009. Um, Middle East, remember MERS? Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, that was 2012. Uh, Ebola was 2014. How about Zika? Remember Zika in 2018? All of these things... And I had, by the way, I had no trouble finding statements by medical experts that this was going to go on for years. It was going to um, attack the major populations of the United States. None of that came out. It, that's not 
how it worked. It's not how it happened. And um, and look, you you don't have to be highly um, uh, educated at all <clears throat> to be able to know that these things work according to a pattern. They they just do. There's something called Farr's law. F A R R. Farr's law. Uh, Farr's law is like from the middle of the 19th century, time of the Civil War, uh, and they they said that um, Farr's law states that epidemics rise and fall in a symmetrical pattern that looks like a bell-shaped curve. In other words, they rise, they peak, and then they decline according to the same thing. Seasonal flu does that every year. Ebola did it. SARS did it. AIDS did it. All of these follow the pattern of Farr's law. Uh, right now, it is already on the downward slope in China, as I think everybody knows. And so, uh, um, so you know, why didn't we, um, why didn't we quarantine people every year with flu? Because the, we're so used to it that we don't panic, and so elected officials didn't feel the need to placate the mob animal. They are doing something, which brings us to an additional problem here, and that is a good part of American society. I don't know. I'm I'm horrified to think that it might be as many as half, but a good part of American society, and even more in European society, and uh, and other places as well, uh, believes that it is the government's job to keep us coddled in cotton wool, to keep uh, make sure we are constantly protected from every possible threat, peril, and what's more, inconvenience. People really do believe that. People are infected by another deadly disease. It's called the do-something syndrome, which is somebody has to do something. Somebody has to do something. This whole thing could have been dealt with just fine by 300 million American citizens um, simply going about their business and employing normal precautions. The coronavirus does not, and I know some of you may disagree with this, and again, I'm not a doctor, but I'm going on the um, balance of the information that I have been able to research. Okay, am I wrong? I'm not saying... 100% I don't know but I certainly feel very comfortable saying my conviction at the moment is that coronavirus is not as contagious as the regular flu is every year not it's not more contagious for sure so why don't we quarantine for flu every year because it's ridiculous you can't do that first of all it's very contagious flu is and coronavirus so, you know, just by the moving around that people have to do, you, you can't keep people in their houses for week after week. For one thing, that although you think, well, that way we're saving lives, you're not really, because what you're also doing is shattering the economy. And that means you're harming lives as well. Please remember that... Um, that the stock market is one of the ways we allocate capital to solving problems. 
Over the past five years alone, 426 new healthcare and biotech companies have had IPOs on the NASDAQ, on the exchange, and they've raised over $40 billion with an average return to investors of 23% in their first year. These are companies that are solving medical problems and making their investors wealthy. Um, I'll give you just one of them. It's called Moderna, M-O-D-E-R-N-A. Moderna announced just this year that it has shipped vials containing a first batch of coronavirus vaccine to the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Uh, now they've got to do clinical trials, right? They involve about 40 healthy volunteers. That is scheduled to take place in April. And so, you know, these things take time as they wend their way through the swamp. Uh, meanwhile, Moderna's stock price, I saw, is up nearly 50% since February right now. Clear sign to me that this means capital is flowing to medical innovation. That's a good thing. It doesn't help people to kill the economy. And, um, and so, you know, people, oh, for an abundance of caution, we're going we're gonna to close our company. We're going to close this. You know, it, it's virtue signaling. It makes you sound very holy and very pious. But at the same time, you are probably causing much more harm than you are doing good. And that is something to bear in mind. The economy is a real thing. It has become as powerful as it is for a variety of reasons, including our connectivity, because every time through history that there have been major breakthroughs in mechanisms and ways of allowing human beings to get together, to communicate, to cooperate, to collaborate, that has always resulted in the creation of wealth. So it was railways did it. Uh, the um, the um, uh, the electronic telegraph by Samuel Morse in 1844 that did it. Um, the uh, breakthrough of uh, the telephone did it. Uh, commercial radio did it. Commercial television did it. Obviously, within living memory for everybody, the internet did that, and so. Connection creates wealth. This is very much a part of ancient Jewish wisdom. I have written about it extensively in Thou Shalt Prosper and in Business Secrets from the Bible. I've spoken about it in a very nice audio program you can download, if you like, called Prosperity Power Connect for Success. And it's a two-hour audio program. Go to rabbidaniellappin.com. Go to my website on the web. Go to the store go look for audio programs and say you want the digital download and away you go two-hour program which you'll enjoy listening to with friends but it it shows the idea that connection is what produces wealth this is true for societies it's also true in your own life but that's a a different topic Uh, a, a principle from ancient jewish wisdom is that as powerful as anything is for good so powerful is it potentially for bad, right? Gunpowder, dynamite, very, very useful for mining valuable things from the earth, very valuable for clearing terrain so we can plant things, but it's also can be used very destructively in bombs and explosives. 
uh, nuclear power can destroy Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It can also uh, relieve mankind of drudgery, the capacity to create almost limitless amounts of electricity. Um, fire itself, the basic, the most basic manifestation of energy, fire itself can drive a steam locomotive and carry uh, goods all across the country, but it can also destroy a house. So anything that has enormous potential for good also has enormous potential for bad. The human sex drive, right? The human sex drive can impel a man to build a family and create a business and be competitive and do all kinds of wonderful things. It can also cause the destruction of lives. Anything powerful can be effective both for good and for evil. There is incredible power in human connectivity. To good, it produces a thriving and vibrant economy. To bad, it produces a mob that can then result in fear, panic, and hysteria. So if we know that regular strains of flu are going to kill 80,000 people, and by the way, CDC numbers on that are high. I know they say 80,000 people, but what they do is uh, it's a distortion. And again, this is easy to find out. I didn't have to speak to a lot of people about it. It was quite easy. What they do is that anybody who dies during the flu season, even if they die from um, lung disease and uh, heart disease, all kinds of things. But if there's any flu um, virus present in their bodies at a at at a um, at any examination, they are considered to have been a victim of the. There's a reason why they do that, which I'll come to in just a moment. But at any rate, millions of people worldwide are going to be dreadfully impacted by the flu. Coronavirus isn't anywhere near that. Right, it's it's it, it's it's not even close to that. But the panic is stimulated by it in in ways that we've just it's 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 crazy. It is absolutely crazy. The hysteria, you know, it's very much like a financial depression, in the sense that nothing much needs to change in material terms. In a financial depression or a recession, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden money has been spirited away out of the country. It doesn't mean somebody started a bonfire and burnt millions of dollars. It doesn't mean anything like that. And a recession happens when a large number of people start believing there is no tomorrow. When they believe things are getting worse and worse, you've got a recession on your hands. In other words, it is a matter of faith. In other words, it is a spiritual problem, not a physical problem. You know what? The extent to which we're all being harmed by the coronavirus is spiritual, not physical. Other than those people who actually catch it, and I know somebody who is in that situation, and um, he is you know, there's not as if there's a whole lot to be done. There's no specific treatment for the coronavirus. Um, he, uh, you know, he gets supportive care and, uh, and, and he's got pneumonia now. So, it, you know, there's, there's basic things you do, right? But 
other than people who are suffering with the uh, with with very real symptoms of coronavirus, everybody else's life is being made worse by spiritual factors, and those spiritual factors have a very specific name: panic, fear, and hysteria. Um, because there's a mob mentality out there, but still, somebody has to yell fire in the crowded theater, right? If nobody yells anything, everybody sits in their seats watching the performance or uh, eating their popcorn. But somebody has to shout fire. Who is doing the shouting of the fire? And the answer is the news media, politicians, and, yes, governmental and quasi-governmental agencies like the Center for Disease Control and the World Health Organization. How exactly does it help for the World Health Organization to make an announcement that it's a pandemic, not an epidemic? Nine out of ten of us can't even tell the difference between those two words, but pandemic sounds so much more serious. And so we all run out to the store and buy a truckload of toilet paper. That's right. That is happening. For heaven's sake. And by the way, I am not blaming anybody who ran to the store to buy up bottles of water or toilet paper because the results of a spiritual malaise like fear, panic, and hysteria is very real. You may well be severely inconvenienced. Your local store may indeed run out of bottled water and may run out of toilet paper and canned tuna. May well do because of this. So I'm not saying you shouldn't go out and get yours. You probably should. And by saying that, here am I contributing to it. But I guess in a way, what I'm trying to do at this point is point out where the exits are. Somebody's already yelled fire in the crowded theater. Um, if there was a possibility of us all, everybody just staying in their seats and ignoring it, that would be the best. But since there's already a stampede for the exit, and I guess the theater um, metaphor fails here because in the theater metaphor, if you just stay seated in your seat, well, people clamber over the seats. They could clamber over you and, and hurt you that way. Maybe that's also possible. But, but anyway, um, I, I'm talking about pointing out where the exits are at any rate, uh, because it's a very real thing. The danger to which we are being subjected by fear, panic, and hysteria is actually more serious than the, the, uh, the harm we're being caused by the, um, uh, by the virus itself. I'm sure you all know that the risk factors to people of older age and who have are immunodeficient exactly what they say every year with the flu no different people are you know should people get the flu inoculation vaccination every year everyone has to decide that question every year but the doctors usually say oh if you're over a certain age you should do it because you are more susceptible yeah that's what they're saying about coronavirus as well it's exactly the same and so if there's no panic every year for the flu why is there a panic now and here uh, wisdom comes to the fore. I don't need education. I don't need intelligence. I only need wisdom. And the the wisdom is pretty obvious to, to you as to, well, to anybody who stops to think about it. All you got to do employing the mechanism of wisdom is you have to ask yourself, who benefits 
right? Who's got motive, right? You remember all your detective mysteries of the past, um, Angela Lansbury on Murder, She Wrote. Uh, you'll remember means, opportunity, who had the means to do it, who had the opportunity to do it, and who had the motive, who benefits from it. Okay, let's take a look. Politicians uh, lead the pack in driving the hysteria. Uh, what's going on there? Well, for one thing, they see this as an opportunity to get rid of President Trump. They see this as the best opportunity. They know that for President Trump to run against Joe Biden is a joke. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it should be unfair. It should be banned. It's not even sporting. Their goal is for President Trump not to run against Biden, but to run against the virus, the coronavirus. And he will be the president who did nothing. Well, this is only going to fool those who believe that it's the job of government to do everything. So right off the bat, I don't think that's going to be terribly effective, but it's, it is demoralizing because all you do every time you open your newspaper or turn on the, the radio, all you hear is, oh, the president has failed. The president hasn't solved it. The president hasn't done anything. Look, uh, one of the things you would enjoy knowing about is that the president actually did start doing something on this quite a while ago, three years ago, and that's called draining the swamp. What am I talking about? One of the uh, things that, one of the sort of memes that's running around, everybody's jumping, well, South Korea's testing 10,000 people a day. We haven't even tested 10,000 people in total. I have no idea if that's true or not. But even if it is, the uh, villain here is not President Trump. The villain here is, once again, the Center for Disease Control, a very politicized institution, by the way, an institution that has its own secret and strange way of deciding what to be panic-stricken about. Uh, it decided not to be panic-stricken about AIDS, not to be panic-stricken about Ebola, but very panic-stricken about coronavirus. Okay, um, they've got their calculations, obviously. But uh, here's a very petty thing they did. They clutched the whole technology of, a of corona testing to themselves. They wanted to enhance their own power, their own centralized authority. And instead of making it possible for tests to be available all around the country, in every hospital, in every doctor's room, this is not an expensive or hard test to do. They kept it all to themselves. And so every single test had to be sent to CDC facilities and only analyzed there. And then the result sent back. My goodness, um, the governor of Hawaii, right, Governor David Eig, um, he declared a state of medical emergency in Hawaii recently, even though, as you know, there was not a single, single case of coronavirus there. So he gets up, a politician gets up, recommends that everyone must have a two-week supply of food. There was total pandemonium at every supermarket on the islands of Hawaii. An insanity, right? It's, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. Going back to swine flu 
pandemic, by the way. The World Health Organization called swine flu a pandemic, and they issued warnings even more grievous than the ones they're issuing now about uh, the pandemic in 2009. But yet nowhere in America did anyone suggest uh, quarantining and no panic here. You know why? Because it was the first year of the Obama administration and nobody wanted to rock that boat. And so that's how they left it. But right now, many, many, many politicians are hugely incentivized. They see a great opportunity here. Drive up the panic, get people furious, inconvenience as many people as possible, and blame it on the president. And if they can keep this going long enough, then by November 2020, that is how they get. This is, I mean, there's real delirious joy on the left because they have seen zero chance of beating the president denying him a second term they've looked at their own democratic candidate lineup it's been pathetic they democratic strategists themselves have said it's hopeless and now for the first time in three years they actually see some chance light on the horizon we can defeat president trump not with a candidate but with panic fear and uh, hysteria and then anger as people realize the extent to which their economy has been hurt. When people realize what all this has been done, all we have to do is focus that anger on the president and everything will work out well. So that's certainly the political motivation. How about media? Well, uh, for media, it's um, much of the media is on the left as well, and so they also share in motivation number one, but they have an additional motivation, which is eyeballs. And the fact is that you are probably one among many people who, when you get up in the morning, you actually look for coronavirus news, right? It's in the news. You're a human being. It's irresistible. You can't help it. I know I do, right? Because I'm waiting, hopefully, to see signs that the warming weather, and I know some people say that's not going to make a difference, but I think it will because it has to every, it's the, it's re, it's the reason why every single flu season subsides at this time of the year so i do believe it will uh but um the uh, the 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 development and the change uh, they never warranted hysteria then but now uh trying to get eyeballs yes coronavirus oh you just have to use that word and people come to see and so for media driving the hysteria and the frenzy well yeah it makes sense and um, and uh, how about um, government and quasi-governmental institutions, CDC, WHO, and other places? Um, for them, it's it's money. You know that the very first thing Nancy Pelosi crowed about was that we've allocated eight and a half billion dollars for coronavirus, and nobody stops to say and exactly where and how are you going to spend that? What are you actually going to be doing with that? They don't care. Because a good part of the country believes that money will solve everything. All, you, by the way, that's a natural belief of a materialist. A uh, Marxist materialist believes money solves everything. One of the reasons that they've been flinging money at gigs for decades already, and public education in America just gets worse and worse and worse. And uh, and so similarly here, the very fact that 
Congress allocated $8.5 billion. Whoa, whoopee, we've solved the problem. Now, what this means is that organizations like CDC, which are also made up of human beings and people like their little fiefdoms, and when there's a lot of money that flows in, it's wonderful. It's like being part of a startup that's growing and growing and growing and growing like crazy, and it's getting, it's raising huge sums of money, and the profits are flowing through the door. It's a great feeling, is it not? As opposed to being in a, a failing startup. You know, many of them fail. As everybody knows, the majority of new businesses do not make it. It's a very miserable feeling, right? Is it not to be in an organization that's just not long for this world, that's just dying? And so for these medical organizations to uh, make more money come to them, oh, this is wonderful. Uh, the only way to do that is to drive mass panic, fear, and hysteria. It's the same way that every time funding is up for discussion at Congress for NASA <clears throat> space research, uh, just before that, they miraculously announce a discovery that could suggest life in outer space. And there's all kinds of discussions, and it's in the news. And so when uh, the lobbyists come up to their uh, congressmen and senators to talk about funding for NASA, they're all well-primed. Oh, we might be on the threshold of the most momentous discovery of human history, life in outer space. And, of course, the money spigots are opened and the money flows. That's how, that's how it works. And so when uh, the World Health Organization declared it a pandemic, yeah, that means additional money allocation. Um, there's a physician that Congress uses um, that, uh, that, that said, recently said for Congress, 70 million to 150 million Americans will be infected. Really? It's amazing. But it's such a frightening figure. That's like half of all Americans are going to be infected. We'd better allocate more money. Um, Harvard epidemiologist, a guy called Mark Lipsitch, um, says that 20% to 60% of adults in the world will catch the disease. Why is he saying that? He wants more money for his research lab, obviously. Um, Angela Merkel said... 70% of Germany could wind up infected with AIDS. Like what? How can a responsible politician make a statement like that unless they are either thoroughly evil and irresponsible and all they want is publicity? Now, Angela Merkel doesn't get the news very much these days, but if she says something absolutely outrageous, like more than half of the nation could end up infected with AIDS, yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it. And so... When the swine flu epidemic struck in 2009, no, no problem because nobody wanted to upset the Obama apple cart. But now, with the incredibly intense hostility for the American president on the left around the world, oh, this they see is going to be the, the, the way to do it. This is going to be the way to end things for him. So uh, that is, my friends, exactly how this works. Uh, the, the problems you and I are facing, and I'm sorry, are for the most part uh, going to be the problems brought about by fear, panic, hysteria. The markets will be chaotic. Uh, there'll probably be some downtime. And that uh, means it may well be a very good time to buy stocks. Uh, be very selective, all right? It, it may be that 
Um, tourism and hospitality stocks may be down for a long time. I don't know. Um, it's also possible that there are other things that will climb and do well. Particularly, I'm thinking, for instance, is it possible, and I'm just thinking aloud with you here, is it possible that a whole bunch of people who've never worked at home before, they've never telecommuted, they've never done this, are now being forced to do it, and uh, guess what? The They discover this works pretty well. So it may be that companies that provide software for working at home will be doing well now. As I said earlier, there's some medical companies that I suspect will be doing pretty well. Um, maybe um, for profit universities. Okay, now that's a whole nother thing. And it's worth taking a moment on that as well. Uh, there are a number of for profit universities in the United States of America and elsewhere around the world. Uh, they do a good job for a lot less money than public universities do. And the reason they work is because they're market-driven. If they did not provide value for money, people wouldn't go to them. And, uh, and for years and years, that's been a feature of the American landscape. And for the most part, it's been um, one of the few really positive pictures on the landscape. Nonetheless, the Obama administration launched attack mode against for-profit universities. Why? Well, because the guiding principle of the Obama administration was essentially socialism. And the idea that anybody could make a profit on education was anathema to them. They have exactly the same approach to medicine, by the way. And that is the notion that anybody should make profit on medicine is horrifying absolutely and so much better that the government should provide education and the government should provide medicine and this slides beautifully into the entire socialistic landscape uh, where almost everything of importance should be nationalized should be provided by the government so there is a war on a medical system as it works in the united states and admittedly it's had enormous problems but I would submit that probably most of the problems of the American system have been the gradual intrusion of government into the field over the last many decades. But at any rate, uh, the Obama administration um, came up with something called the, the gainful employment test. And they came up with a ratio between the median earnings of students coming out of that university and the cost of tuition at that university. And they declared a certain ratio to be okay, and above that ratio was no good, and such a university gets closed down. Now, here the thing they were very careful to do, and that is they did not apply that test to any government public university. Uh, since the Obama administration, others have done that, applied the test, and they fail dismally. Um, the um, Getting a master's degree in fine arts at Yale University fails the Obama administration test. Um, professional law programs at University of Chapel Hill in North Carolina uh, 
uh, optometry at the University of California, Berkeley, dentistry at Harvard, all of these fail the Obama test. But the Obama test was never applied to public universities. It was only applied to places like Phoenix and all the many other successful for-profit colleges. I should tell you that among the positive moves of President Obama has been to destroy, to undo the gainful employment rule of the Obama administration and, uh, and um, re- restoring the right of anybody to start a university uh, for pay and for it to rise or fall on its own merits. And yes, universities are closing. Uh, I just received a notification that my local library system uh, is closing today, March the 13th, um, until the end of March. So for more than two weeks, it's going to be closed. Craziness, right? No, not at all. Have you ever heard of making lemonade out of lemons? If you are employees of the library system, and you get together with your administrators and you have a meeting and you say, I think for the in the interests of health, the wise and prudent decision, caring about our people, caring about our communities, don't you think we should shut down till the end of the month? Whoopee, two weeks paid vacation. Do you think I'm being cynical? I'm not. This is how the world really works. Shutting down schools, really? And so what are parents supposed to do? All the kids staying home now for two weeks in public schools around the country. Are you really absolutely persuaded that none of the teachers and administrators got together and said, hey, here's a wonderful excuse, a wonderful reason. But nobody actually put it that way. They all put on their long, serious faces and they said, don't you think that in the interests of playing it safe, in the interest of the health of our children, don't you think we should close? Yeah, 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 let's do that. By the way, do we get paid for the rest of the month if we close? Yes. That, my friends, is how the world really works. So uh, here's what I think is probably going to happen. Um, they are going to be released. I mean, the CDC should be shamed for clutching coronavirus testing to their chests and not allowing it to happen everywhere. It's, it's a fairly straightforward test, by the way. And uh, the CDC just needs to send out the standard sampling uh, material to uh, allow tests to be calibrated. Um, they won't. They haven't been doing it. They've been keeping it all to themselves. But it's going to happen. And the availability of testing. Look, America, as I, I've spoken about in the past, you know, America... Uh, I've just been recently reading a lot about the B-29 bomber. We built nearly 4,000 of those immense machines in a very short space of time. Um, This is the United States of America, at least where I'm sitting. And yes, tests will become available very quickly. They'll be there. Um, the, um, The vaccine... Uh, maybe yes, maybe no, you know, uh, the bottom line is that like the flu, there's just not a whole lot you can do. When you got it, you, you sort of see it through. And um, will there be people who have bad experiences with coronavirus? Yes, just as there are many more people who have bad experiences with regular flu every year. This isn't fun. It's not nice. 
But uh, it's not the stuff of nightmares, for heaven's sake. But the tests will be out there. The first thing that will happen when the tests come out is that, once again, the fear mongers, the panic drivers, the hysteria nannies will all be shrieking about the huge number of infected Americans. (laughs) Well, yeah, Uh, when you run a lot of tests, there'll be a lot of people who will test positive, including a lot of people who actually feel and experience no symptoms. And so this will, there will be even added hysteria, added panic, um, less stuff on the shelves. Because, right, I mean, the, the, the guy who drives the truck that fills the supermarket shelves, his kids have been sent home. They're not going to school. And his wife has to uh, either quit her job or he has to quit his. Bottom line, stuff's not getting to the supermarket. Right? I understand that. It's true. And so um, there is going to be an, uh, uh, an ad- advance in the number of cases reported. That's going to drive the panic through the roof. But uh, guess what? Um, the far rule is going to come to play, which means very soon we're going to hit the top and it's going to start the downslide towards going away, plus the warm weather having an impact on that. So uh, pretty soon that is going to happen. Uh, pretty soon the market will regain its equilibrium and its intrinsic strength will be recognized and uh, it will recover. Um, Obviously, it goes without saying that unless you're absolutely forced to, people should not be selling off their portfolios for sure. And, um, uh, you know, that, that is kind of what's going to be happening. It'll, it'll go away and, um, We'll be back to the Democratic primary race. And you know the one thing I'm sick and tired of hearing from Democratic candidates in, a, in the United States? Um, here's what I will be able to do for you. This is what candidates are saying. And, of course, because there are so many Americans who, since the 1960s, have been seduced into the idea that government is there to do things for us, as opposed to staying out of our way so we can do things for ourselves. Uh, this is all you hear from Democratic candidates. Uh, this is what I will be able to do for you. And this is what people ask them at, at their rallies. Well, what can you do for me? I'm a semi-retired this, that, or other. What can you do for me? That's what people aren't embarrassed to say. George Washington is turning in his grave. And, um, you know, what can... What can you do for me? Let me tell you who the candidate that can do most for you is. Right? You want to know? The one person who can do most for you, I've got a clue. Here's a clue. His picture is on your driving license. That is the clue of the one person who can really do things to improve your life. Don't look to the candidate. Don't look to the politician. Look to the person whose photograph is on your driving license. That person can do more to improve your life than any politician in your state capital or in Washington, D.C., or in your county capital, whatever it is. No, it doesn't. uh, It simply doesn't work that way. So, no, you are your best first recourse. And on that basis, uh, you know, you just you, you, you are responsible for your own health. The basic precautions everybody knows. I'll mention one more thing, and excuse me, 
um, and that is the uh, the simple reality that we're also approaching hay fever season, right? It's going to come up big. This is tree pollen season coming right now. And you've got to remember that allergies can lead to things like sinusitis, secondary impacts, bronchitis, asthma with fever, chills. And so a lot of people who are just having a normal season allergic reaction to pollen are going to panic and say, I'm getting coronavirus. So, uh, you know, just relax. Unfortunately, yeah, go buy toilet paper. (laughs) This is not diarrhea, it's coronavirus. But as I said before, it doesn't matter if there's a fire in the theater or not. All that matters is that this animal that Elias Kennedy describes, this mob has decided that there is, and it's behaving irrationally. You and I, we're all caught up in that mob, and we unfortunately have to cope with it. That's how it is. But this too will come to pass, and it will come to pass sooner rather than later. And meanwhile, if you are stuck at home, if you are spending more time away from gatherings, maybe for matters of precaution, maybe you're not going to church or synagogue, maybe you're not going to gatherings, and now you're not even going to your local public library, um, this is a good time to study Bible. And I know of no better resources for that than at the store of Rabbi Daniel Lappin. That's right. So go to rabbidaniellappin.com. There is a special offer on a program called Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam. Uh, Very, very helpful. I I almost think President Trump has listened to it. I mean, not really, but but the way he has been uh, dealing with the Middle East, I almost suspect it feels like he has listened to Clash of Destiny, uh, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam. Also, I alluded to a little earlier, the very, very useful program in terms of your own financial destiny, and and that is called Partnership Power, the Connect for Success. And that is a two-hour audio program. These can all be easily downloaded. And there are a whole lot of other, there's Genesis Journeys, uh, studies there's uh, about noah and uh, the flood there's about adam and eve and marriage there is about the development of socialism if you are spending more time at home don't watch television please listen to something that contains ancient jewish wisdom of which i am privileged to be the transmitter of the transporter of so all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. I'd love to hear your reactions to this uh, uh, to this uh, um, podcast. Easily done. Go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. There's a tab there that says About Us. In About Us, it says Contact Us. And I promise you, I get to read your comments. Uh, I get to answer a goodly number of them, as many of you have already discovered. But that is at rabbidaniellappin.com. Do let me know uh, how you found this uh, program, whether it was useful or helpful. 
I know there are other things you've asked me to discuss, and I'm gradually working my way around of them. I wasn't going to do the coronavirus, but I received several uh, letters at RabbiDanielLappin.com from people asking, including one from India, by the way. Uh, we have a wonderful listener in India, and uh, I'm going to see. I really I should have had this prepared uh, a while ago, but I didn't. But I'm just looking to see real quick if I can tell you. Yes, uh, it's um, Reverend uh, uh, Tamaliel and his family. They live in Bangalore, India, and they write, As your happy warrior listener, I eagerly wait for a detailed podcast on the current world panic caused by the plague. Your recent Esther and Sarah and Susan's panic isn't personal, just gives me a glimpse of your thought on this, and it's great comfort. Yours respectfully, John Thomas, Tamaliel, and family. How lovely. Uh, There they are in India, and uh, I hope, sir, that you enjoyed this show and uh, that it was what you were hoping that I would do. I sincerely hope so. Thanks so much, everybody, for being part of the show. Thank you again, those of you who are doing such a fabulous job spreading the word on this show. Really, really appreciate it. There's a young lady in Israel uh, who tells me she's been getting it around a great deal. I appreciate that so much. So thanks very much, everybody. Stay healthy. Have a wonderful week. Make it a week of good times in your family, in your faith, your friendships, and your finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and from my heart, I say to all of you, God bless.